A friend of mine went to K-State University, and um, he was so excited to reach his dorm floor for Christ. We laid out kind of a plan of how to do that the first semester, and uh, he calls me up three weeks into campus, spiraling downward in despair. And I'm like, Andrew, what's going on? He's like, bro, my roommate that I was coming up here with from high school, he bailed. So K-State put me with a random roommate. This guy's a Muslim. I'm like, your roommate's a Muslim? He's like, he's a Muslim. He's like, Todd, this guy prays five times a day. He's like, I pray five times a month. He's like, this guy, he fasts for Ramadan for 40 days in a row. He's like, I fasted once in the eighth grade and my girlfriend broke up with me. He's like, who am I to say that he's going to hell when he's way more spiritual than me? And that's what you call a crisis of faith. What happens to those who through no fault of their own never hear the gospel and die? What happens to those who through no faults of their own never hear the gospel and die? And the answer to that question, how you answer that question will affect how you give, how you live, and how you raise your kids. Like that answer has so many things attached to it. It affects how you give, it affects how you live, it affects how you raise your kids. Determining the answer to that question will share with me how you're gonna live, how you're gonna give, and how you're gonna raise your kids. So, as it comes to what happens to those who through no faults of their own never hear the gospel and die, I wanna give you, I'm gonna give you three options, okay? You're gonna leave here with three options. You can be a pluralist, you can be a inclusivist, or you can be an exclusivist. So you can adhere to pluralism, inclusivism, or exclusivism. Now, maybe this is the first time you've heard these words. When you leave that, that, this, this church and you go to your home or your work or back to family gatherings, and you ask, you ask your friends and colleagues and family members, what happens to those who through no faults of their own never hear the gospel and die? Your friend's not gonna say, oh, I'm an inclusivist. She's not gonna use these words. But when she shares with you her perspective, I want you to be able to say, oh, Carol, have you ever heard of an inclusivist or the inclusivism view? Because that sounds like what you are. Can I give you the pros and cons and help affirm and mature what I think you should perceive it? So I'm giving you these terms so that you can have a conversation with people, asking them their perspective, but then coming back and helping to educate them into a proper perspective. So what we're gonna do this morning is gonna be fun. It's gonna be exciting. And we're gonna go through these three words and we're gonna find out what you are. And hopefully it affects how you live, how you give, and how you raise your kids. So let's just start with pluralism, okay? Let's start with the pluralist. For the pluralist, they would say, there's a religious ultimate reality out there and they call it the real. And all major religions are legitimate responses to the real. Now notice, the pluralist will not say there's something out there called God. They don't use the G word, why? 
because 650 million Buddhists don't believe in God, 350 million Confucius don't believe in God, and 250 million Taoists don't believe in God, that means one out of every seven people breathing don't believe in God. And the, the pluralist wants everybody to be able to adopt their philosophy, so they're gonna say there's something out there we're going for, and it's called the real, and all religions are legitimate responses. Salvation and transformation are occurring at the same extent across all major religions. You're no closer to the real as a Christian, as I am a Hindu, as she's a Jew, as he's a Buddhist. We're all chasing after the real. Now, if you take Philosophy 101 in college and you go into class, the first thing the professor does is he likes to tell a story. He'll tell this story because it's a pluralist story, and the story comes from Hinduism. And the story goes like this. A king invites into his court five blind men, and unbeknownst to the five blind men, the king puts in front of them an elephant. And he tells the five blind men, reach out and touch and tell me what you feel. Well, the first blind man reaches out and touches the tail, and he cries out, it's a rope. The second blind man touches the side of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a mud wall. The third blind man touches the leg of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a tree trunk. The fourth blind man touches the ear of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a banana leaf. And the fifth blind man touches the tusk of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a sword. And the reason the pluralists love this illustration is what it shows is this. All five of the blind men are touching the same thing, but they're having different experiences. And so in the same way, Christians are touching the tail, Hindus are touching the leg, Buddhists are touching the side, Muslims are touching the tusk. It feels like you're all worshiping different gods, but you're not. You're all worshiping the same real. You're just having different experiences. So the pluralist would argue when you open the Quran, the holy book for the Muslim world, it's gonna read a little different than the Bible only because the Muslims touching the tusk and the Christians touching the side. So the pluralist would continue to say, the world's religions provide independent access to salvation. Christianity is just one among the many options. Now, if you are a Christian, then the Bible is authoritative to you. If you're a Muslim, the Quran is your holy book. If you're a Buddhist, the Dhammapada is your holy book. If you're a Hindu, the Bhagavad Gita is your holy book. Man, pluralism. Hmm. Hmm. Do I even know a pluralist? The church is filled with closet pluralists. They're not gonna tell you this in the four-year or in Bible studies, but invite them to do something missions, invite them to give or pray for the world, invite them to go, invite them to come back to an afternoon of missions, and they're gonna be like, ah, that's okay. And you go, wow, I thought you just didn't have time to do missions. Now I know you don't think the lost are lost. You think they're fine. So option number one, you can be a pluralist. Option number two, you can embrace what's called inclusivism, or you can be an inclusivist. What's an inclusivist say? Well, an inclusivist would say that Jesus is the definitive and revelation of God. The, the pluralist who we just talked about is like, no, 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 there's many revelations of God. Ram, Krishna, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, Gandhi, there's probably one alive today. So the exclusivist, is, or the, I'm sorry, the pluralist is gonna disagree with the first point of inclusivism. But the inclusivist would say, no, 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 Jesus 
is the authoritative and revelation of God. The inclusivists would argue that Christ's work on the cross is necessary for salvation. The hinge is the death and resurrection of Christ. No one goes to heaven without the death and resurrection of Christ. For the inclusivist, the most important event in history is the death and resurrection of Christ. But for the inclusivist, it's not necessary for you to hear about Jesus in order to receive Jesus. So the inclusivist would argue, you don't have to hear about the grace of God in order to receive the grace of God. Everyone's saved through the cross, you just don't have to hear about it to be saved. Well, now that, how, I have a question. How, how does an inclusivist get someone saved through Jesus without them ever hearing the message of Jesus? Great question. And for an inclusivist, that's not a hard answer. Here's what the inclusivist would say. The inclusivist would argue that you are only held accountable for the knowledge you possess. Inclusivism 101 says this, you're only held accountable for the knowledge you possess. So if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you grew up in Riyadh and you're a Muslim, you're never gonna own an Arabic Bible. You're never gonna hear the gospel in Arabic. You're never gonna meet a Christ follower who speaks your language. So you are only held accountable to the knowledge you possess, which your religion is a Muslim. You're a Muslim. So the inclusivist would argue When this Muslim is a good Muslim, faith in Islam or being a Muslim ricochets to the cross. Jesus in heaven looks down and sees this Muslim in Saudi Arabia who will never have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so Jesus sees, wow, he is so true to the faith he has in Islam that that faith ricochets to the cross. So the Muslim is saved through Jesus, but he doesn't find out that until he gets to heaven. When he gets to heaven, he's gonna be like, oh my gosh, I thought it was Allah and Muhammad. No, but faith in Allah and Muhammad saves. So for the Muslim, he is saved through by being a good Muslim. Every time he walks to the mosque, it's as if he's asking Christ into his life. You and I, we've got podcasts, camps, can I cook? We've got, we've got Bibles, we've got translations, we've got churches. You and I know we have to actually pray and ask Christ into our life. So that's what you have to do. But in the East, they don't know that. So for the inclusivist, you're only held accountable to the knowledge you possess. Put another way, a person might not know Jesus, but they have responded to God by being a good Muslim. So if you ask this Muslim in the Middle East, hey, are you a Christian? He's gonna say what? No. Are you a Muslim? Yes. Are you a good Muslim? Yes. Then you're saved by Christ and you just don't know it, but you'll find out later. You're saved by the sincerity and the faithfulness to what you know. So you can be a pluralist and believe in the real. You can be an inclusivist and say Christ is necessary, but they don't have to turn and respond. They can find out in the afterlife. Or the third option is you can be an exclusivist or you can embrace exclusivism. So what does exclusivism say? Well, exclusivism would agree with the first point of inclusivism. Both the inclusivist and exclusivist would argue Jesus is the the authoritative and definitive revelation of God. 
The exclusivist would also argue with the second point of inclusivism. The exclusivist would say, yes, the hinge is the cross and resurrection. No person can be saved without it. But the exclusivist takes it a step further. The exclusivist would say, it's not enough that the event in 33 AD happened. You actually have to hear the message, turn from Krishna, and respond to Christ. So the exclusivist would take it a step further than the inclusivist and say it's not enough that the event happened. Now, let's just see if you're tracking. Let's see if you're tracking, okay? So I wanna see, I'm gonna see if you're tracking. I'm gonna tell you a story, give you an example, and I'm gonna see if you're tracking, okay? So let's see, here it is. A Chinese peasant has never heard of Jesus. But he knows from watching his rice grow every season that something greater is out there. In light of this knowledge that something greater is out there, he calls on his ancestors all the more for help. So the situation goes like this. A Chinese peasant lives 100 kilometers outside of Beijing. He throws the seed down to feed himself through, through the seed, and the seed grows up, and it feeds him. And he's like, oh my gosh, I didn't cause the rain, the sun, the soil, the growth, wind, nothing. Something out there is causing this growth. So he takes his seven-year-old son, he grabs two incense candles, and he walks seven kilometers to the shrine. He lights the two incense, thanking his ancestors for causing the growth. How lost is the Chinese peasant for the pluralist? How lost is the Chinese peasant for the pluralist? And the answer is, the Chinese peasant's not lost because he's calling on the real, just like we this morning are praying to the real. So for the pluralist, the Chinese peasant is not lost. How lost is the Chinese peasant for the inclusivist? Well, for the inclusivist, the Chinese peasant's not lost because He's only held accountable to the knowledge he possesses. He thinks his ancestors are helping him. He lights incense to his ancestors, but really Jesus is receiving his worship and he'll be asked to join in heaven through Christ by being a good worshiper of his ancestors. So for the Chinese peasant, the inclusivist, for the inclusivist, the Chinese peasant is not lost. How lost is the Chinese peasant for the exclusivist? How lost is the Chinese peasant for the exclusivist? He's completely lost. And unless someone changes their zip code, learns Mandarin, and shares the gospel with them, he'll be headed to a Christless eternity. The pluralist would say not lost. The inclusivist would say not lost. The exclusivist would say completely lost. And if I came to your house for Thanksgiving dinner and you invited your friends and family and extended relatives, and in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, I said, what happens to those who through no faults of their own never hear the gospel and die? At your own kitchen table, I'm gonna have all three views. You're gonna look at me and say, Todd, my daughter in college has never heard the term pluralist but she defined it perfectly. No wonder my parents aren't interested in me being a missionary. They're inclusivists. Of course, they don't want me to waste my life in India when you think Hindus are fine. So let's evaluate, shall we? Let's evaluate. What are you? What am I? What are we? Well, 
I'm not a pluralist. I'm not a pluralist. Why is this? Because in pluralism, God becomes gush. Literally, God becomes gush. What do I mean by gush? It means there's nothing definable that you can say about God. Because if another religion says something different, both have to be true. And if both are true, none are true. So let's say you're sitting at the Starbucks, you know, the good one down here. Let's say you're sitting at the Starbucks and, um, and you, you look over and there's a table and at the table, there's a Muslim, Buddhist, and a Hindu. And you're like, oh my gosh, I need to go over and ask them some questions. So you walk over to the Muslim and you're like, excuse me, sir, how many gods in Islam? And the Muslim says, oh, there's one God. And then you go, excuse me, Mr. Buddhist, how many gods in Buddhism? And the Buddhist says, there's no gods. And then you go, excuse me, Mr. Hindu, how many gods in, in Hinduism? And he says, there's millions. Who is right? Who's right? Well, for the pluralist, all three are right. And if all three are right, none are right. And I believe in Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, God wants to be known. He wants to be known. He's spoken through the prophets, through his son, through the word, through his spirit. Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 shares he wants to be known. I'm not a pluralist. But the problem with inclusivism is this. Moving from Cretia to Christ doesn't involve turning. 40 times in the gospel of John, Jesus says, turn, respond, repent. 40 times. And the problem with inclusivism is there's no turning and repenting, but merely a clarification in the afterlife. You thought Krishna saved, it was really Christ. So moving from the worship of Krishna to Christ doesn't involve turning from Krishna, but merely a clarification in the afterlife. Now, I don't know if you were raised Catholic. I don't know if you know a Catholic. I have a friend who knows a Catholic, so this is... This is really close to me, okay? This is very close to me. But from 1960 to 1963, the Catholic Church flew in their top priests from all over the world. And for three years in the fall months, they, they had what's called the Vatican II. And they dealt with all these difficult theological issues. Well, one of the things they tackled, one of the things they dealt with is what happens to those who through no faults of their own never hear the gospel and die. And in 1963, the Catholic Church decided inclusivism is the official stance. So read with me in 1963, the catechism they put out, codifying inclusivism and see if you can hear any inclusivist language. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel, but seek God with a sincere heart and do in their actions through their dictates of their consciousness, those too may achieve eternal salvation. What does this mean? Well, if you work with a Catholic or you're trying to get a Catholic to church and, and you're like, hey, have you ever heard about missions and God's heart for the world and giving and praying? They'd be like, why do we do all that? Like, I don't understand. And it might not be their fault. It might be because of, the, of how they were raised and the paradigm they were given. So I am not a pluralist. I am not an inclusivist, but there is a major problem with exclusivism. That's a major problem. There is a major problem with exclusivism. Ah, uh, outside these walls, every person you know believes good people go to heaven. It makes sense. God's a good God. He wants good people to go to heaven. It keeps society running well because if I know I have to be good to go to heaven, it's gonna make me be good. It's fair and God is fair. And exclusivism comes against this. So um, recently, I spoke at University of Texas. 
They brought me in to speak to 400 students at UT, all the frats, all the sororities. And they said, we want you to speak on, do good people go to heaven? And so I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be okay. So I get there, 400 people in the room. I mean, there's an overflow. And my topic is, do good people go to heaven? And I get up and I say to them this. I say, hey, thank you for being here. This is gonna be real short. This is gonna be real simple. I said, when you leave here and go back to your fraternity or sorority, I want you to know this. Good people go to heaven, okay? So just let that soften your heart, get out your notes in your phone and write this down. Good people go to heaven. And then in 96 font, behind me, I put up this verse. Someone yelled out, I don't know who Roman is, but I disagree. (laughs) Why do we disagree? Because we think we're good because we're comparing ourselves to other people. Oh, Joey, man, in high school, he flipped off cops. Yeah, I'm not Joey, I'm good. And so we don't, we don't measure ourselves according to God. Mother Teresa says, I'm wicked and do not deserve God's favor. Okay, if that's Mother Teresa, think about us. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined. And he wrote 66 chapters in the Bible. So again, the problem with exclusivism is not a problem. It's just an issue that's, that rubs the world the wrong way. The last thing I said to the students at UT, I said this, I said, good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. So here's my challenge to you. As you leave here and go to Chipotle, I wanna encourage you one thing, okay? I wanna encourage you this. I want you to be an exclusivist. But I don't just want you to be an exclusivist. I want you to be someone who's like helping those who've not heard the gospel come to Christ. I want you to be an engaged exclusivist. I want you to be an engaged exclusivist. I want you to understand there's refuge, there's international students, there's immigrants in Topeka, there's Muslims, there's Buddhists, there's Hindus who will never hear the gospel unless you actually say hi, initiate, start the conversation, get their number and take them to coffee. Like as a Christ follower, that's what you, you, you need to do. I'm not a people person. Well, that's okay, you're a Christ follower, so now you are. Welcome to the faith. It's called out of your comfort zone. So congratulations. Before you were a Christ follower, no one cared if you were a people person or not. You could live in isolation. But now you have a mission and a message. So I want you to be an engaged exclusivist. Now, how do you become an engaged exclusivist? Well, there's two things you have to do if you're like, man, I wanna be, a, I wanna be an engaged exclusivist. I wanna be an engaged, you gotta do two things, okay? The first thing you have to do is you have to get informed, okay? Cluelessness is no help here. We gotta get you educated. What does that mean? Well, here's what you need to do. There's five holy books of the major world religions. So you have for the Muslim world, you have the Quran for the Hindu world, you have the the, the Bhagavad Gita for the the, the Confucius world is the Analects, the Buddhist world is the Dhammapada, and for the... um, for the Taoist world, it's the Tao Te Ching. And here's what, I, I need you to be a level two or three familiar with these books. Now, some of you might be like, I wanna go a seven, that's fine. I at least need you to be a two or a three. Watch this, like, watch this, watch this. Watch this, watch. The Quran. 
114 chapters, exact same size as the New Testament. And if you bought it, skimmed it, or read it, for the rest of your life, you could talk to two out of every seven people breathing about their faith. Not I think or I heard, but I actually read. Watch this. If you read the Bhagavad Gita, the holiest book for the the Hindu world, it's 700 verses, and it's the same size as the book of Mark. For the rest of your life, you can talk to one out of every seven people. So now with the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita, you got three out of every seven people breathing. If you read the Dhammapada, the holiest book for the Buddhist world, you have 650 more that you could talk to, people. The Dhammapada is the same size as Ephesians. Now, I'm gonna say something you're not gonna believe me, okay? I'm gonna say something you'll be like, I don't believe you. I promise. What I'm about to say is true. You'll be like, Todd, I don't believe you. It's true. You'll be like, I don't know. You're gonna be walking out of the parking lot and be like, do you really believe what he said? Just tell your spouse, it's true. It's true. What I'm about to say is true. I have met Christians who in their city is Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, and they don't own a copy of the holy books. I've met them. They have people from these faiths, but they know nothing about these faiths. You're like, no, I've met them. I promise you, they're out there. How am I supposed to tell a guy, hey, read my holy book, even though I don't have a copy of yours, nor do I care about yours? That doesn't make sense. So get informed, get informed. And secondly, get engaged, get engaged. What I mean by this, watch Paul the apostle in Acts 17 when he's talking to people who worship a lot of gods. It's basically the Hindus of Athens. And watch what he says. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. Look at how he engages. He initiates and he compliments He starts off with complimenting this religion. Ladies, that's you at Target. When you see a woman in a veil, you say, man, thank you for for your modesty. I know that's hard. Watch this. Then he walks around and looks carefully. He's seeing inroads. Oh my goodness. Men of Athens, what you worship to an unknown God, I say to you, in him we live and move and have our being. 550 AD, Epitomedes, your holy book, the Epitomedes. It says, in him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. And Artemis in 3 BC said, we are his offspring. Look at where he's quoting. He's not quoting from the Old Testament. What is he quoting from? Their holy books, using it to transition to the gospel. I mean, what would it look like if you're in line at Starbucks and you're six deep and you're waiting and in front of you is someone from another culture and you say, excuse me, sir, where are you from? And he says, I'm from India. And you oh, you're from India. Wow, that's incredible. Hey, I just read the Bhagavad Gita. You read the Bhagavad Gita? Yeah. I thought, man, if one out of every seven people believe it's true, I should at least read it. Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Why did Arjuna not want to fight? Oh, that's, that's a good question. We asked that a lot growing up. 
here's why I think he didn't want to fight. Man, have you ever read our holy book, the Bible? Do you even have a copy? Man, check this out. I've got like 17 other questions of the, uh, about the Bhagavad Gita. If I gave you a copy of my Bible and I took your holy book, can we sit at Starbucks and ask each other questions as we read both? And one of those two, one of those two is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing heart and soul. I'm not gonna tell you which one it is. Okay, you can find out. But one of those two, again, I'm not gonna tell you, don't ask me in the foyer. One of those two. But you know what the average Christ follower does in Starbucks when they see someone who looks, like, who looks different from them and talks different from them and has a name that they can't pronounce? Every person you know does nothing. Because we're more concerned with getting to soccer and setting up the cones. That's a tragedy. If you wanna learn more about being an engaged exclusivist, come back at 1.30. We're gonna have two more sessions from like 1.30 to 3.30, and we are gonna give you some really good application on how to be an engaged exclusivist. Let me conclude with a quote. All roads don't lead to Christ, but Christ can be found walking on all the roads. All roads don't lead to Christ, but in these holy books, there's breadcrumbs. Oh, that sounds like grace. That sounds like sin. That sounds like judgment. That you're, All roads don't lead to Christ, but Christ can be found walking on all the roads.